and I get the feeling you've been cheated. The magic might have been inside of us all along. Are you serious? Yeah. I told you, Michelle, I love you. Life is everywhere. You don't have to go on the road. You don't have right. to, you know, sell your teeth and move into a squat in order to live life. You just have to attend to the community you're in and be aware of people around you. And and I find that, you know, privilege has a way of insulating you from having to deal with that. All right. Um, welcome to the Social Yet Distance podcast. My name is Jack Barnell. I'd like to welcome you and thank you for coming in. Um, today, we're going to do an interesting uh, event with uh, Elise Versella. Um, Elise is push, Pushcart nominated. She's a contributing writer at Rebel Society, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more later. Um, she's published in COG Magazine, Entropy, Enclave, The Opiate, Ultraviolet Tribe, What Rough Beast, and one of my personal favorites, Elephant Journal. Um, Versella has worked with Francesca Leah. Block and Women's Spiritual Poetry, whose latest anthology, Goddess, When She Rules, raised money for the Malala Fund. Kirkus has called her a boundlessly energetic and promising technician who crafts a unique blend of the symbolist and the confessional, <clears throat> a talented and promising newcomer. And um, that one kind of struck me, so we'll talk about that as well. Um, and she does, you know, performances at local coffee houses and does some teaching as well in workshops and and uh, in local libraries and, and events in and around the local neighborhood, which I'll let her tell us all about. So welcome. Welcome, Elise. How are you? Tell us all about yourself and how you're doing. Uh, good. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Cool. And you're in New Jersey somewhere? I am. I'm in South Jersey, so right smack dab in the middle of the Pinelands, uh, about 20 or so minutes away from like Seaside Heights. So that general area is my abode. Yeah, I'm I'm a um, confirmed Southerner, and I know nothing about that area of the world at all. It's really kind of sad, actually. <laughs> Florida, uh, I feel like gotcha. You know, but, strange. <laughs> I'm closed up in, in that in that world. I travel a lot through books, though, so that helps. Um, tell me a little bit about your journey. Uh, I, I know that the readers will want to hear about that. I mean, obviously, you're relatively young, and, and um, I know that there's some education in your back, background as well. So tell us how you kind of came to be where you are in the world of poetry right now and where you kind of feel like that is. Oh, man, I feel like I finally hit like where I want to be, um, but I still feel like there's so much for me to learn and so much farther for me to go. Um, but yeah, I started writing poetry, you know, when I was like 12, 13, it was really bad angsty stuff. Um, and then in high school, I really kind of blossomed. I took a creative writing class. I had a great teacher. I had lovely teachers in high school that were really they helped me evolve and grow and just really explore mm -hmm. that um, writing aspect. And then I had a friend's mom introduce me to Rebel Society. And I kind of consider that like my nest. And that's where I kind of learned how to fly off into this poetry world. Because without Rebel Society, I never would have found women's spiritual poetry. 
I never would have found Elephant Journal. It was like the building, it was like the foundation. And then all these stepping stones kind of led me to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. You know, I, I've come to realize the wisdom of women. Um, I, I worked, um, one of my writing jobs was uh, with the Good Men Project, which is kind of a male version of, of what you're describing. But the interesting thing was I worked with mainly women because they actually were the ones that had the answers. <laughs> and I found that quite amusing. And unfortunately, I had some social media skills, so I wasn't limited to my um, maleness and my writing skills, neither of which were very apparent at that particular time in my life. But um, we built an organization that does a lot of really, really good work. And in that process, I met Andrea and some of the people that were, I, I think Rebel was relatively new at the time. And um, Elephant Journal was, um, you know, very um, vocal and upfront at that time. And, you know, in my own kind of personal search for spirituality, I, I, I kind of landed in both of those places as well um, and found some meshing with uh, the, the words that I kind of felt were trapped. So I, I, I'm big on the incubator theory um, because it's treated me very, very well. So yeah, for something that's pretty much virtual, like I've never physically met these people, it has grown into this sort of family almost, right? And especially with women's spiritual poetry, that's, that's been like a, a whole new family, definitely. Well, I'm quickly learning, too, that um, as spiritual as I would like to consider myself, my um, <clears throat> my spiritual energy is no match whatsoever for the feminine energy that's loose in this world. So, uh, you know, I, I comply willingly and believe truly we would be much better off if women ran the world and, you know, I could just shut up and yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, do my thing, whatever that may be. That's some um, raw energy we all need to tap into. Hopefully, you know. Um, the, the thing is, though, I, I found myself in a kind of unique situation that I wanted to ask you about because I get this vibe from you just because of where you've been. You know, I, I try to research a little bit and understand the people that I'm talking with. I don't want to just sit here and talk about books and blah, blah, blah. And recently in my life, um, I've had some people... Uh, a person, um, I'll, her name, and she's a younger girl, um, and she's coming to my life through some some family channels that I I didn't know about or expect. So there is a connection there, and I sensed that there was some attraction to words with her, and I started I started kind of delving in and finding out. And the truth is that she is what you described. She has that teen angsty you know, 15 year old kind of thing going on. Um, and she's looking for a way to express it. And, and just through being available, I was able to identify that um, she was writing, you know, and, and she was expressing that in her own little secret world of, of what she calls poetry. And, and it is, um, I, who am I to judge it, you know? Um, yeah. But so long story short or longer, um, <laughs> What would you, sitting where you are now, tell that 15-year-old girl who wants to, A, tap into the emotion, and B, get it out, um, and particularly is drawn towards poetry as a tool to do that this young and this early? Oh, man. 
they're heavy, so, huh? that's so, <laughs> it's so heavy and I instantly just think back to like myself at 14 15 and how it like I didn't feel confident I didn't feel like I fit in my own body and I really thank God for poetry honestly and thank God for those creative writing teachers and English teachers who saw something and said you know this is good you should pursue it I think and I, I did write a poem on Elephant Journal, you know, poetry can save the world. But poetry, like I wouldn't be here without it. I honestly mm-hmm. believe that I would not be here without it. I would be a completely different human being. Um, the 15 year old girl writing poetry, it's first and foremost to just overcome those emotions that you can't make sense of in your head. And when you feel like no one else is listening to you or you feel like you don't fit, you don't have a place, you don't feel at home in your body, poetry was the way to find not just myself, but my place in the world. Mm -hmm. So I think if you're writing poetry, if it's found you, because I do believe poetry finds you and not the other way around, to keep writing and just to see where it takes you. Yeah, I mean, and that's basically what I say, too, is like, you know, it doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be good. It doesn't have to be read by anybody but you. But, you know, what you want to do is tap into whatever the emotion is that's causing that need to get it out of your fingers onto a page somewhere and tap into that and learn to love that and and respect that. And the writing part of it, well, you know, you can always clean that up and learn the techniques. And uh, I believe that the word they used for you, young lady, was, uh, what was it, technical, profoundly technical or something, you know, like that. And and that's, you know, that's what I tell a lot is, you know, you know, and see, my thing is I, I get excited because she's excited and she doesn't even really want to show that she's excited. But then I'm throwing stuff at her, like, you know, Gwendolyn Brooks and Adrian Rich and, yeah. and, Plath and you know all this stuff that's like wait a minute (laughs) you don't want to hit her with Sylvia Plath right out of the gate that's probably not maybe not it's probably not the best thing to do but at least I'll you know when I do that because I obviously can't control myself and because I'm drawn to that type of poetry you know I I do tell her with the 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 disclaimer that look this might be a little bit dark and it might be too much And just understand that the theory is the same. She's tapping into that emotion and it's coming out her fingers, just like yours is going to be too. She's just learned it a different way and has different emotions. That's all. Yeah. You know, and I think even if her stuff does start out dark, like maybe what she's feeling is dark. And I think Francesca Leah Block always says this in with her work, she turns pain into poetry. And I think in that process of, you know, overcoming whatever you're going through, that that pain or that mess of like chaos inside you, poetry, you know, it's going to take whatever that darkness is and make it something, you know, a bit, maybe it's not super bright, but it's modeled. It's like an overcast sky, but right. it's still beautiful. You could kind of see the sunlight shining through some spots. That's, I feel like that's what poetry does for our darkness. 
Yeah, I think it's, uh, or, I mean, on the same level with a different metaphor, it's, you know, it's a uh, pressure release, you know, yes. it's, you know, whatever amount of pressure it takes to keep that pressure at the level that you need to be creative and energetic and sensitive to the world and whatever, it, you know, you can maintain that if you learn how to release it um, to the degree, you know, to modulate it and keep it where it needs to be. It's not a good or bad thing in any capacity. You know, it's right. just you have to determine what that pressure is. And, and, and you know, as a, a 50 plus year old guy, you know, it's not real. I mean, I can make a lot of grand statements about poetry, but how relatable will that really be? You know, um, right. when I'm talking about, you know, yeah, I remember when I was a 15 year old girl, you know, <laughs> gee, back in those days, we had to walk to school full of days, you know. And we wrote about it too, in it. So that's why I asked. <laughs> Today's public service announcement. Don't be a lame flame. It's been done already. And speaking of Los Angeles traditions, the Social Yet Distance podcast is lovingly supported by Punk Hostage Press. Punk rock sentiments in words. We send a happy nine-year anniversary to Punk Hostage Press, its founders, editors, and all the authors. We'd like to thank you for walking us through our transition from Van Halen to X by way of the Go-Go's. Fueled by a flurry of recent releases from 2020 into 2021, Punk Hostage Press has used three recent releases to lead the forefront. Dan Denton has released his $100 a week motel. Nadia Bruce Rawlings, Driving in the Rain. And hopefully Nadia will be here with us soon. And then A. Razor's long-awaited Puro Purismo. Come visit punkhostagepress.com for access to a library of work from the finest small press writers ever. PunkHostagePress.com. Well, I know this. I bet you have a poem that's probably answers that question somewhere. I do know. Oh that. man, <laughs> I think all of when wolves become birds is just constantly answering that question. <laughs> yeah. So why don't we hear one of one of those poems? That'd be a good thing to do at this point, don't you think? Sure, absolutely. Uh, let's see here. I think. All right, now that we're on the topic of like our 15-year-old selves and what I would say to that girl, I'm going to I'm going to share from when wolves become birds, uh, a girl's whole life can be found in her purse. Uh, I love that poem. I read that the other day. Or you yeah. read it or something. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. The empties her purse. Like the galaxy empties its milky way over the desert. The contents spill out like the hopeful prayers of teen girls who still believe God travels via shooting star. She empties her purse and tosses the Revlon red in the trash because that's how he made her feel when she wore it. Her mouth, a pretty stain like the stain on the carpet. Why did we ever wear blue white eyeshadow? Like somehow it made us more adult to wear such unflattering makeup. <laughs> What's this infatuation with girls and their makeup? She throws that too in the trash and mumbles, fuck it. 
as if the absence of color on her face would stop them from staring, it doesn't. She cuts the credit card in half. The one she charged for the cab to take her home. The one with higher limits than the levels of booze in his blood. My mother always told me to keep extra money for a ride. Like God forbid anyone act dignified before trying to get between our thighs. The plastic cracks like the makeup she slept in. I should invest in waterproof mascara because it always runs when I cry. Men named their car, so I named my purse. I call her Priscilla, not like his wife, more like queen of the desert. She empties her purse, but keeps the license, not merely a privilege awarded, but more like that freedom we sought. We keep trying to fill ourselves up like we are not already enough. I think I'll just keep on driving ride these roads into the desert and find something altogether different to fill the contents of my purse with. She didn't want to be queen of just the desert. She wanted to be queen of herself. You can tell a lot about a girl by what she keeps in her purse. It's like we keep our whole life there, we carry it close, and it weighs some of us down like a burden or a curse. No wonder she dumped it all out. She'd rather carry the universe in her heart where it counts. The poem is so freaking awesome. I'm not even going to comment. Okay. That is for do all the Alanas and all the Wolf Girls. That's right. You do that, girl. I I, uh, I am behind you 100%. I'm just going to leave that there. Let's talk about the books, though. Tell, okay. tell us again the name and why. So the most recent one is When Wolves Become Birds. And I spent a lot of time with the poems in this collection uh, running the same theme of uh, like the werewolf myth. I started thinking to myself, well, you know, that feminist in me, it's not, it's not a wolf man. I mean, I love Lon Chaney, but it's not the wolf man. It's the wolf woman. Because, you know, when girls hit puberty, we grow a pelt of hair. We're shamed for it. You got to start shaving. You can't have hair in the wrong places. And then when you get older, some of us, you know, some of us can clock our cycles to the phases of the moon. So I'm like, if anyone's feeling like they're trapped in this beast self, you know, roaming around, howling at a moon, it's a woman. And I just thought, you know, for not feeling out, home in my body it it was um it was trying to remember that I'm not destined to just be trapped in this beast self that I still have wings that I can take off and soar and that the sky is mine for the taking you know I'm not I'm not stuck right. so when wolves become birds that's um, that's really beautiful. And I find it pretty interesting, too, that, that that's your view, because I've always been uh, drawn to a canine vibe theme. So that has always rung a bell with me. But people automatically go to the theme of like the big bad wolf is what they picture. Yeah. And when I was pretty young, I was probably 15 or 16 at the time, I read Herman Hesse's Steppenwolf. And the way that I interpreted that and the way I, I believe it was intended was it's describing an internal drive 
that I have to fight with to keep my instincts in check from being that wolf. And so it's, it's an internal struggle <clears throat> to kind of resist that and keep it under check. And there's the full moon times when you just can't. And, and it implies some sort of um, inability to control based on my instincts. Whereas your description is the completely opposite. It's a, it's a fueling, it's a feeling of um, empowerment. It's a, a desire to change and move forward. And even though mine feels progressed from the big bad wolf theory, there's still some sort of struggle and not really resolved kind of like what you described. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And in that same vein, I feel like maybe a lot of us are afraid of the big bad wolf that lives inside of us. And at least I'm hoping that with this book, you become one with that wolf self as well. Cause, and I like, I liken it to like anger and how we think, oh, that's such a bad emotion. You need to like control that and like tamp it down. There's a poem in the book that describes tamping down one's flaws. I think you really have to like hone them. You know, they're a part of you and shouldn't, you shouldn't be ashamed of that. Right. Maybe and, it's okay and, a little bit to be the big bad wolf. Well, I mean, yeah, and but see, the thing is, is it's all poetry. All of this is poetry, you know, and these themes don't, I mean, they're not just standalone things that you and I are talking about. These things are rooted in history. They're rooted in myth. They're rooted in books. They're rooted in literature. They're rooted, you know, in horror movies and, you know, whatever. And, and it's all, um, the only true description is that it, it has to be embraced because it is. I mean, that's just the way it is. And my feeling is that those instincts are treated to be tamped down. Whereas my theory is we just develop defense mechanisms because we're fighting against those instincts that are already there. It's okay to want to be secure. It's okay to want to be, you know, connected to a society. It's okay to be hungry and need a place to live and, you know, all those natural instincts that we have. So when we start to bend those things out of shape is when I have to bring in the male part and yeah. figure it all out, you know? Yeah. And, and so, it's just intriguing to me that your description of the exact same process is just so comfortable and like, Hey, you know, it's a, it's a maternal uterine moon thing, you know, geez, figure it out, dude. <laughs> but that that's kind of the way it is though. I mean, that's why a guy like me would say, well, you know, I think the world would probably be better off if a bunch of women ran it, you know, cause, and that doesn't threaten my manhood at all, <laughs> you know, <laughs> That makes me feel kind of secure, actually, because I don't have those other male instincts out there looking to fight me, you know, or to bring out some bad wolf. And, you know, the women I cross, the feminine that I cross, they're either scared of the human or the wolf. And that's their problem, not mine. You know? Right. <laughs> so, you got to find that balance. So anyway, that ain't doing a damn thing to sell your books, is it? <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know if we should do a poem and talk about another book or whatever, but you know, the thing that, that did um, that I always go to is this, this idea of voice and whatever the hell that means. 
you know, and then I, I, I like I, I'm going to read the quote. Kirkus has called her a boundly energetic and promising technician. Promising technician. Now, I realize the intent of those words, but that feels like nails going down a chalkboard to me <laughs> because I'm not I don't come from an academic background. I didn't learn. I, you know, I read that's you know, that was the thing. Right. Same. So I don't have very any different background. You know, it feels very different to me than like sitting in an English class and actually understanding um, Robert Lowell or something, you know. Oh, God. <laughs> I find it so funny that Kirkus had reviewed me and said that because it, it kind of felt really great because I don't have any technical background. I didn't go to school for this. I've only just started taking like some actual classes and like poetic form and meter and all those things that I didn't know anything about. It was right. just kind of like an intrinsic thing that I happened to accomplish in a poem. I'm like, oh, that's what that is. Okay. Yeah. yeah. My Bukowski says, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was like reading in high school, you know, like Bukowski and Kerouac and Ginsburg. That was all my poetic training. <laughs> like, oh, I'm just going to write like them. Yeah. Jim Carroll was my favorite. I, I don't know how well you know him, but you should. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go and like read some of his stuff after this. New York heroin addict, punk rock star, good friends, Patti Smith, that whole crowd. Ah, Patti Smith. <laughs> and died of an overdose, of course. So, mm -hmm. so many good ones. And yeah. um, Basketball Diaries was his book. Okay, yes. Wait, I have heard of him because I did yeah. just take a class with the, um, oh my God, the Poetry Project had a class on like punk poets. Yeah. And I was like, this is interesting. Yeah. So yes, I do recall the basketball. Yep. Well, you can always get the Outlaw Bible of American Poetry. That's that yeah. big black book right there. It's about six or 700 pages of every American poet you could ever possibly imagine. And there's an entire section of punk poets, okay. outlaw poets, concrete poets, you name it. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. <laughs> I love how poetry can encapsulate like the punk poets and then like these classical poets. There really is something for everyone. There, there definitely is. And it's all the words. And just like I tell, you know, everybody across, it's... You, that stuff is floating around in your heart, man. You got to snag it. And if you got to get it out, then you got to snag it and get it out. I really don't yeah. care how you do it. You can do eBooks. You can do, you know, individual pieces. You can write it in the sky. I don't care. I know that feeling, you know, I, you know what I used to do? <laughs> I used to write little poems on little bitty pieces of paper. And in my thrift store travels, I'd hide them in pockets. So somebody would find them one day. I love that. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, and so all we're talking about is poetry. It's like, oh, okay, well, why did I do that? Because I felt like doing something nice that day, you know? Yeah. So it's not complicated. Well, it's just life, you know? Poetry is life. I have this quote I'm always thinking about, just be a poem. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Who said that? Do you know? I don't even know who said it. It was like one of those, it's so terrible because I feel like this, a meme life that has kind of just cropped up. You just see something and no one tells you who said it. So it's just like- Yeah, some, some of the uh, discussions we've had on the podcast were around Instagram poets and, um, you know, these, um, what was it? Uh, American, 
No, um, Hallmark is the largest distributor of poetry in the United States. And it's, you know, <laughs> it's factories of people who wanted to be writers who were trapped in hell writing three lines. Of yeah, poetry. they're in a capitalist nightmare. I forget who I was talking to about that, but they lived in the town where that where that place was founded, like their home base. And some very, very famous people that you would know um, worked there once upon a time. And they, I mean, they had to flee, you know, oh, God. <laughs> because yeah. there's like stacks of poets who are just trapped in this cubicle of hell, you know, getting paid for their that, words. That gives me chills. <laughs> no, it, it hurts. Doesn't it? <laughs> it, 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 it's like a knife in the gut. It's like, no. <laughs> Cause I also find that like, I don't know if it's like selling out, I guess like musicians like sell out. But when you're speaking of like poetry in that form of art, you know, yes, everyone wants to make money, but there's also like, I'm not going to sell myself out to Hallmark in order to do it. Right. I think you go into it again, because it's just in your heart and you have to get it out. I don't think anyone goes into it first and foremost, like this is how I'm going to make a paycheck. I think that there's a, a fine line. I mean, I think that people have finally come full circle and understand that, you know, they're not Ted Hughes and they're not going to get a big book tour and they're not, you know, it's not 1969 and, you know, Harper Brothers is not going to give you a quarter million dollar contract and send you on the road, you know, or let you sit in the country somewhere and write your next book, you know. It just doesn't work that way anymore. And most of the time you've got to do the hustle. Even the, yeah. even if you get published, you know, you might have to put part of the bill for getting it, you know, printed. You know, there's no telling what the deals are that are out there. I've seen all kind of crazy stuff um, where, you know, the writer's not getting paid anyway. So if you're going to sell out, then my opinion has always been, well, then, you know, self-publish and at least take all the money. You know, exactly. Yeah. Well, if you're going to have to pay to travel and if you're going to have to do all the social media your stuff yourself one way or the other, whether you pay for it or not, you know, if you're going to have to do all your promotion and all your own web work and everything else, then, you know, you're not getting paid for that. So, you know, a $5 chat book, you know, how many of those you got to sell to feel valuable if that's why you're doing it? you know exactly yeah and and there are people who have adapted models john dorsey is one of the greatest writers i've ever known and you know one of the things he's done is he's got a subscription and you pay him x number of dollars a year and he sends you everything he writes and it might be 20 books a year and it might be 50 and, and it might a be a really good business model i mean it's smart you know yeah. it's it's smart and He's making a living, but, you know, to, to do what he enjoys doing and traveling and giving, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't perform for nothing anymore, but he doesn't have to, you know, you know, he earned that, you know, so I, after 20 years of doing it, then sure, you kind of deserve that if you're still around and people are still buying your stuff and begging you to please tell me how you do it, magic man, you know. Yeah. get you know a dinner and a beer for traveling 100 miles to read you know but it ain't gonna happen for me i gotta i'm paying people to come to my podcast because i i gotta pay people to talk to me for crying out loud oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
they're they're not gonna come anywhere and see me in person. Are you kidding? <laughs> oh man. Uh, and surely that's a weird I thing. No, I, actually, like... it's an evil plan. I've been writing for like 15 <laughs> years now, and and I've never really put anything out there except on Facebook. And one okay. day I'm gonna release a complete works, and I'm gonna get rich because people will at least know my name. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. They'll know you from the podcast, and then they'll be waiting. Finally, put out a well, book. And that irritating guy who keeps reposting all their stuff every time they post something. You know, it's like, oh, my friend in California is doing a reading at at you know some caboose somewhere. I, you know, right. like I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> so read us a poem, there, Miss Versella. All right. Do I say that right, Versella? Yes, got it right on the first shot. Well, I, was very I, spent, proud. <laughs> I spent the majority of my youth in a place called Salvatore's. So that should tell okay. you. <laughs> All right. This is called a natural disaster. They say my blood is tainted it's in my DNA, like the ground beneath me, how the core boils the earth quaking. They say I erupt like the volcano. My rage flows from my veins, like the lava in Kilauea reclaiming its space. It is okay to want to reclaim your space. I've held out like rain and drought for too long, been holding my breath in my lungs for too long. I will not stay quiet any longer. Breath exhaled and the shingles tear from the roof. The wind whips up a gale on the horizon. The Santa Ana's always set the highways on fire. I have singed my throat with soot and ash. My eyes are the lightning, the electric cracking through your birch bark bones. So much pain. And the rain is only welcome when the earth is thirsty. It is okay to cry here. I will not drown in the ground, turn to mud and mulch. No, I am not too much. The people want to flee from me, afraid of what they see in me. They can never cause the tides to rise. Shake the fault lines, spray the power lines. They beg me, tamp down your flaws. Blind to the exquisiteness in every natural disaster. Like the princess cannot be both reprieve and hazard and still get her happily ever after. After every natural disaster, nature sets herself free. The wolf becomes a bird, her wings release. Awesome, awesome, awesome. You know, I was listening and I was thinking, uh, a few minutes ago, I said that I always get to voice and I was listening to that poem with that thought in mind. And I mean, I've been accused of writing like really in a really base fashion. I don't look for really difficult flowery words. I just kind of say whatever. And, you know, I didn't hear anything in that in that poem, the way that you read it, except just some honesty and and you know, a very clear vision of what it is that you're trying to say. And that is voice, you know, really is, you know, you've, you've developed that voice in that particular piece. I'm not saying it's a style necessarily. That's my genre. I just, it's all self-pity and wah, wah, wah for me. But, um, you know, <laughs> you seem to have found some resolution to yours. Um, but the idea is that, you know, we work into some some voice and all I'm saying is I'm not happy with where my voice is. So I keep looking. But it sounds like you're pretty comfortable. And I wonder if that's an accurate read from an outsider. 
I, I think that's pretty accurate. And I appreciate that because I feel like it's taken me quite a while to get to this point. Um, I think voice and style, um, you don't get that until you, you know, you have to keep writing to find your voice and like your style. And I think earlier in my writing career, um, I had that over flowery language, very heavy on metaphor and image, which I think I still err to the side of heavy on the imagery. But again, uh, Francesca Block was one of my teachers. She helped edit this book. You know, she said, dive deeper into like what you're trying to say, be more vulnerable and open that those are like the stronger pieces. So I think as I've progressed as a writer, it's been more of like, what am I trying to say and how can I say it concisely? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I struggle with, I definitely struggle with metaphor because when I get, when I find myself looking for a way to say something that's just really bold in its statement alone, I find myself creating confusion where somebody else will read it and they'll go, what? And I'm thinking, oh, well, that makes perfect sense, you know. Yeah. So, I, you know, I have to be very careful about that. And it, does, it and it's very tempered for me. Um, I, I to offset that, I look for the right word a little bit more than I just said I do. <laughs> but <laughs> but I don't, I don't carry a dictionary everywhere like I would have in the old days and try to, you know, okay, what's the, or a thesaurus was even my favorite, you know, get 10 words and pick which one you like, you know? Yeah. No, I still totally do that with like word processors. But like, yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with word. that, but I'm just saying that that as opposed to being able to actually use the tool of metaphor is kind of a cheating way of doing it. Um, you know, I've been known to dis to dismantle a very, you know, a very nice piece, like a song, for example, lyrics of a song, and just like completely reverse engineer it to the point that it, you know, it's not really plagiarism, but it's the same theme because that particular set of words struck whatever it was I was trying to say. So I don't need a metaphor, damn it. I could just pick the yeah. right words, you know? <laughs> So I, you know, that's, but the, the point that I'm trying to get to really is, you know, you have to get to that voice. And in the process that you've gone through, obviously that has started, you know, from, you know, the girl hiding in her closet, pretending like she doesn't know anything about poetry and writing her heart to, um, you know, performing on stage and actually being comfortable with that. Because I watched the videos, I know you're comfortable. Um, so that's taken a long time for me to get there too. <laughs> that's the journey I'm wanting to talk about a little bit is, because I know that people in my life, they're not ready to go out on stage. They're, they're just getting comfortable with writing the words. So mm -hmm. how do you get from just learning how to take that emotion in the heart and let it bleed out the fingers to sharing it with the world in a, in a, a different format where, you know, that, that emotion's imparted with other tools as well than just the words. Yeah, oh, man, see everything, all my performing uh, career, I owe a great deal to Chris Rockwell, because I went to one of his open mics, 
long, long time ago at a local coffee shop that I don't think exists anymore or it exists in a different form someplace else. But he had hosted an open mic and a friend of mine was like, you should get on the mic. You should just like perform something. I'm like, okay. All timid and shy and like holding the book in front of my face. And he just kind of took me under his wing a little bit. And he kept inviting me to different open mics. And I got to meet other people and other performers. And I think the more you watch kind of like writing, the more you read, the better you get at writing. I think the more you watch other people performing, the better you get at performing. And so I watched all of these people, like Chris himself and anybody else that he introduced me to. And I just watched them. And it was, you know, and they kind of just lifted me up a little and like gave me the push I needed to really vocalize and, you know, become the poem that I was reciting. You know, sitting here and being in the fortunate position to talk to people who are like really, truly accomplished artists, it's, you know, and going along that journey, it's really nice to hear because I mean, on the other side of that coin, I'm thinking about what's going to happen. I mean, this podcast exists really from an idea that came from a discussion about, you know, we all have the community is ultimately the word I'm looking to to talk about here. Um, But, you know, we develop these communities, these little circles of poetry communities with all the drama and so-and-so is doing this and so-and-so is doing that. And by the way, you've been friends with this person for three years and that's not really their name. They've been writing under that name and their real name is this, you know, all this kind of confusing stuff. But the reality is, is that you develop these circles of people, these little communities. And what happens is we all encourage and embrace each other and, 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 you know, drive each other to be better which is the valuable service that it provides. But the issue with it for me is this. There's an, you know, if I've got a book for sale, I'm going to tell all my friends and my little poetry circles and all their little poetry friends and their little poetry circles might hear about it. But ultimately we're in the same little expanded connected community of people. And The thing is, I always use the example of, you know, everybody on Facebook, if I've got a book for sale, everybody in my community and on Facebook is going to buy that book or or would be inclined to buy it. Or maybe not because they've already read it and they know how I write. It just depends. But the thing is, you know, Betty Sue Gambit in Birmingham, Alabama, who has that piece that she wrote, you know, and is 15 years old, hiding in her closet, interested in poetry with nobody to teach her, has no idea that me or you or John Dorsey or anybody else has a book for sale that might change their life. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if I'm truly a poet, then I don't have any choice but to spread that passion. That's to me what a poet is, is like, I can't stop it. You know, the the emotion comes through me and it ends up on a page or wherever it ends up and it's good or bad. I don't really care if you like it or not. I'm doing what I need to do and it gives me what I need. And some people like it. Some people don't. That's always the way it's going to be. But I am limiting my opportunity 
to other communities if I don't look for a way to do that. And so if I want to be closed minded and, oh, I just not going to perform or, oh, I don't, I think eBooks are the shit. I don't want, I don't want to do that. That's crazy. Or, you know what, this, um, one shot hit on Instagram seems to be working and people are receiving something of value from that. You know, all those things matter. And, and just because I'm used to picking up a book at a library somewhere used or not, and it smells good and it feels good in my hands. If I really want to spread the poetry, then I'm going to put it where the people are that want to read it. It doesn't yeah. matter what I like. Yeah, because the performing aspect can be a little frightening and a lot at times, especially for like, I'm generally a more introverted person. So it really does take a lot for me to like get up behind that microphone. How many poets do you know the exact same thing though? <laughs> I think I'm finding like so many more of them where like, yeah, yeah. this is hard. <laughs> Some people just seem like they live behind a microphone though. And I'm in all of them right. always. I'm like I'm not one of those people. <laughs> I think it's practice. Yeah. I really do. I think it's it's yeah. a learned skill, just like anything else. I mean, I, I'm not that good at writing poetry, so I have to continue to improve. It's the same way. I mean, I'm not real good at doing podcasts either, but I'll try, you know, what the hell. And, cool I, and, I, <laughs> and I try to do it for, you know, a right reason, not because I'm looking to make a bunch of money, you know. I, yeah, that ain't gonna happen. I, I've done all that. It, it, it ain't in the cards, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I, I don't care. You know, that's the yeah, thing. It's like connecting. It's about connecting with you know as many. You find so many more like-minded individuals when you do this. Podcasting, poetry, performing it live in community. Well, and I think even more importantly to that fifteen-year-old girl is that you'll realize that the skills and the emotion and the sensitivity to the world around you and the compassion that comes from it will make you better in everything you do. I mean, it's yeah. just like any other discipline and, you know, you might hate school, but if you go there and you learn some valuable things, you can put it to use and, and get something from it. And, but you can choke on it too, if you don't share it, I believe. Yeah. You yeah. Know. It definitely extends to other aspects of my life, poetry. And then, yeah, if you don't get it out there, you are joking on it. Detrimental then. Well, I think we've done a damn fine job of solving the world's problems today, Miss Versailles. I think so. <laughs> I think really poetry what we need to do though is we should, we should give your poetry its due. And um, why don't you close us out with a couple of really slam bam pieces and, uh, All right. and then we'll close out and you and I can say goodbye in private. All right. All righty. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll share like two, three more. Sure. Go, go crazy. The distance between two selves. Consider the distance between two points. The first is a height. The second, the fear of the climb. And the distance extends out like a telescope. The farther a star moves away. It's in this way. Wings betray a blue jay. But consider the altitudes the body can reach. Like a body asleep projects the soul to an astral plane. How a dream given branches builds a nest, a home, and does not second guess feathers left to compost. Heavy may be the bags of bitter salt that break open like the earth or the heart. Heavy handed it spreads like chaos. 
the low trusted more than the ability to bear it. The lover considered foolish how she lets her body burst forth with brilliant understanding of what it means to love someone as much as she loves herself. Stop trying to calculate what can't be measured like ocean fathoms and familiar phantoms, their hauntings mistaken for friendship. Trust again in the night sky. Do not mourn the fading of its stars as they burn, scorching the arid dirt. You are the sapling reaching, but you are not the binding root. And your tears will not set the ground aflame. They extinguish the thirst of so many choking doves. Darling, the mountain is never the obstacle. It has always been your fear of the stumble. Do you think all fledgling birds consider distance before they learn flight? No, they simply fly. Yes, they do. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is called for all the dreams I still have yet to dream and all the dreams once had. I said, I want to cast spells, mother. Let the pearls drip forth from the oyster shell of my mouth. I want to taste the cities, mother. Hold the earth like a lover holds my hips above the ledge of his. I won't hold secrets and empty promises. I want blood oath and lightning strikes, terror and the shriek of a nightmare, jolting me alive. Nocturnal birds once the day sets. Watch the girls as they set their masks down. Embrace our dark nights and vulnerability that I still cry and shout so you can hear me over the sting in my throat, the sting of this salt, these crusting waves. I swear to God, one day I'm going to drown in. But for now, I'm learning how to float, how to sip of love and not get drunk. Oh, how the tide wants to pull me back with her. But I am still a stubborn woman, mother. I am learning how to take a fighter's stance. On shifting plates, I try to pirouette and I am graceless. But thank God for that. Thank God for my vulgar mouth and my two small hands. They hold this bleeding organ like an offering to know God at all but my younger self, that holy ghost, haunting skeletal halls that creak a little more upon waking now. Kneecaps remember what it was like to run, hunch, howling, because it hurt to learn I must become a beast. Some of us never shed the pelt for wings, forget we were made for skies and we make our own heavens from the pearly gates of our teeth. A smile that bites back like a dog in the junkyard, a warning behind a chain link fence. We were all born in the gutter with our eyes full of stars. Mother, maybe we did fall to earth from Mars, but I still believe in what we've been building here, even if we burn it down daily. Aren't we all witches that's a burn at the stake daily? Joan of Arc, and maybe I am crazy. Crazy as my feet levitate from the grass, as I dance and spin righteous, divine like a dervish. I spin in the grass and the dew wets my cheeks. I think I'm crying. For all the lost souls who once held mad dreams, foaming like the seashore at the mouth of their bays, there is no jetty jagged enough to break my wake. Oh, I am dreaming, mother. Do not attempt to wake me. Man, I like that poem a lot. I, you know, I was sitting here and as you were reading it, you would read a line and I'm thinking to myself, God, I, I like that. I'm going to remember that and mention it at the end because I really don't like to comment after poetry only because I feel it a little bit differently, I think, than some people. 
I kind of like to swish it around and taste it like I'm doing a wine tasting or something and kind of evaluate it. But occasionally I get smacked, boom, boom, boom. And I was feeling like, okay, remember this line? That was fucking awesome. And then the next one comes and it's like another little standing individual poem that completely made me forget the line that I just memorized. And I'm trying to remember this line. And then the next one comes. That was good stuff. I, I just have to tell you that one because normally I don't have anything or know what to say, but I kind of felt uh, bowled over by that one a little bit. Thank <laughs> I didn't you. control myself, apparently. <laughs> uh, I'll close this out with one more poem. Yeah, please do. Okay. I will edit manuscripts, but I will not edit myself. <laughs> I do not wish for snapshots. I want the whole damn panorama. The extended cut, the unedited scroll you let roll forth from the typewriter, like a carpet you did not have pulled out from under you. And I want the dust you swept under that carpet when your mother wasn't looking, when you were tired of the nagging. After you unpacked all the boxes of your body, you kept closed up, taped shut, because you've been so afraid to unpack your baggage and buy furniture with sturdy legs. Legs that will dent the carpet. Legs that might scratch that hardwood if you don't first lay down some velvet to buffer it. I say refuse all buffers, like bowling without bumpers, like I don't care if sometimes my ball lies in the gutter, scream guttural. If you cracked the mirror and today didn't like the imperfect reflection, scream if it makes you feel better. Because hawks don't consider the eardrums of earthworms. They scream because they are flying high and they are hunting. They are taking all that opportunity has laid before them because God gave them claws. So do not retract yours. We have deemed the clawing inhumane. So what if you scratch a little? If you sting a little? If the blood reminds the spineless, you are still here. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much for your words. And, and I, you know, I can say this for sure. Um, the next 15 year old girl poet that shows up in my life will be getting a referral to your work and you may expect a phone call. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, but I, in, in return, I would also do the same thing for you. And I'm going to tell you, you know, I have been really blessed to meet some people along the way that are just, I can't even describe. And so besides the fact that this person is my best friend in the whole wide world, she is also the most prolific and beautiful writer slash poet slash person I've ever met in my life. She's my partner in this, in this project. Her name is Fran Locke. And there are, she's very, very well known, particularly in the UK. Um, she, there are podcasts on the um, site with her and a lady named Jane Byrne. You want to know Jane Byrne. You want to know Fran Locke. That is a place to start, but that is in no way you need to go. You'll end up at the Poetry Foundation and serious places to, to learn about these people. Um, and, you know, I'm fortunate to know them and every available opportunity when I run across somebody who is learning and growing in that in that spiritual journey that whatever we believe poetry is. Um, those are two people that I, I would definitely say that for a feminine spirit, especially, um, 
you will find some some magic there that will that will encourage and inspire. I promise you that. And oh, thank you so much. Yeah, Fran Locke and Jane Byrne, and there's a podcast with them together um, that's magic. Seriously, awesome. <laughs> thank you so much. So enjoy that. Thank you. You sit tight. I'm going to say goodbye to everybody else, and we will uh, we'll say goodbye. All right. Thank okay. you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming and hanging out with us and listening to the um, silly rambling of poets um, looking for attention. Probably, you know, at least one of us doesn't deserve. But thanks for coming by. We appreciate it, and uh, we hope to offer a lot more um, where that came from. Thanks. Be well. You can go to socialyetdistance.com. We are live now. All the links at the top will take you on our socials and where you can go to support us. That's all the ad I'm going to give you. Sorry. Earn it. Spend money. Bye. Hello. My name is Jack Varnell. I'm the emotional orphan. I am with the Social Yet Distance podcast. And... You know, in this crazy COVID world that we've created, everybody is always looking for ways to support themselves and their families. So that's what the Social Yet Distance uh, podcast and crew is really all about. We're built on the idea of supporting small businesses, the small press, and all the creators we can get our hands on. We're looking at ways that we can bring you more and better content that helps us to meet that goal. But meanwhile, redbubble.com, and Society6, the number six, Society6.com forward slash Emotional Orphan at both. We'll get you to our art store and merchandise store where you can pick up all kind of goodies. Um, anything from art to full size furniture. So come visit us. Help support the podcast. Oh, thank you.